All right, grab your Bible. We're going to dive in to our last sermon on our series of the means of grace. So when you grab your Bible, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we're going to start this morning. Um, Before we dive into that, I need to reset the context for what we're doing. So we have been, since the beginning of the year, studying the idea of the means of grace. Means of grace. Now, I've said it. This will be the, I think, ninth time. So you might, by this time, have an idea of what the means of grace are. But for the sake of those who haven't been here, or maybe you don't remember, let's rehash that one more time to make sure we have an idea of what we mean by means of grace. Two main words, means and grace. Let's start with means. Means is the churchy word, historically, to refer to what we might, in today's lingo, call tools, maybe actions, um, things we can do that accomplish some given end. They are the means to that end. That's the one way we still use that word. So we're talking about the means to a particular end, and these means are towards the end of you growing in Christ's likeness. That's what we mean by grace. There are tools, biblically given, that you can use to grow in Christ-likeness. So we've talked about sanctification a lot. Sanctification is also one of those big churchy words that usually just refers to you becoming more Christ-like. We have a tendency to think of that externally, and growing in Christ-likeness or growing in sanctification means you start to act like a Christian better. And there may be some truth in that, but that is not what we mean technically when we say sanctification. It's not that your outside needs to change. What part of you is it that needs to change? The inside, the heart, your actual desires, what you want in life is what needs to be changed. And it's very interesting to tell someone to change behavior. It feels like an entirely different task to tell them to just be a different person. But that is indeed exactly what the gospel is saying. You need to want different things. You should love different things. You should hate different things. You should be changing in the very core of your being into a different person. And that person is going to look like Jesus Christ. Growth in Christ-likeness. All of our growth in Christ-likeness is part of God's grace towards us. He is doing a work to change us, to transform us. When we get saved, and to throw another churchy word, we use the phrase justification. We've been talking about that word a lot on Wednesday nights in our Galatians study. But the word justification simply means God declares you to be among the righteous. And in the Old Testament, there's this idea of you've got the wicked and you've got the righteous. Of course, everyone thinks they're in the righteous category, especially churchy people, your religious people. But we learn clearly in the New Testament that what gets you sorted out is not actually how righteous you are or even how wicked you are, but whether or not you have faith in Jesus Christ. And when you have faith, God says... You are righteous, declares you to be righteous. But we all know we're we're not. We're not that righteous. We're not the thing we've been declared. But once we get declared that by God's grace, by His grace, He actually helps us become that way. And that's what um, sanctification is. That's what our growth in Christ is. So a means of grace is a biblical tool that helps us grow in Christ-likeness. Now, we put them into two categories. Let's say I'll know the nerds from the um, attenders with this question. The first category, what did we call it? Oh, objective 
means of grace. Very good, they're outside of you. There's something you, you show up to, and there's almost a passive element. They happen outside. We've said there's three of those. There's preaching the word, there's baptism, and there's the Lord's Supper. There's something, um, I lost my term, sacramental. There it goes. There's something sacramental about each of those things. There's some mysterious way that that actually produces change in me. When I take the Lord's Supper, it's reminding me in a very realistic, very tangible way that Jesus has died for my sins, that my sin is forgiven in the blood of Christ. When we see baptism, we see a visual picture of regeneration, of someone being born again into new life. A change is happening. We see that together. And every time we hear the word, the power of God is being put into our hearts and our lives, producing change. Those are the three objective means of grace. Then we transitioned from that and started talking about what usually, instead of means of grace or sacraments, usually the subjective ones are called spiritual disciplines. Now that word discipline um, sometimes can sound positive, but most of the time when we hear the word discipline, we hate this word. You know, as a child, when you think of the word discipline, you don't think of the positive correction, you think of the negative correction. But really, when we talk about spiritual disciplines, we're talking about the positive kind, formative training that I apply myself to. Now, we've looked at these in terms of categories. The first category was the Word. How do we use the Word to grow in faith? We talk about reading and studying and memorizing and meditating on this Word. We use the Word to work in us. It's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It does spiritual surgery on our souls as we use it. And so it's a means of grace in that sense. Then we talked about prayer. And now, prayer was a means of communion with the Lord, and that communion could permeate all of life. It's not just this running dialogue or monologue, talking to God, but also thinking about God and thinking about His creative work, His redeeming work in all of life, praying without ceasing. So we talked about the Word and then prayer, and then last week, everyone's favorite topic, we talked about fasting. Now, who went last week, left that message, and went and ate a huge lunch? Shame on you. I did too, okay. All right, so, but we, we talked about what it means to fast, and so we tried to paint a picture of fasting that made sure we didn't recreate some righteous work. You, you fast, God likes you more. Not what we said. In fact, it was very much different than that. It's using our hunger as a tool to remind us of the hunger we should have for God, and we even highlighted that in the Old Testament, that one big fast, that 24-hour fast they had to take before the Day of Atonement was followed by a seven-day what? Feast. There's a good ratio. There was one day of fasting paired up with a seven-day feast, and I like that math. But the thing is, as Americans, we, we do the seven days a week fast 52 weeks of the year, and we, we never get around to that, that one day. And it's a tool we can use, and we neglect it. So here's how this works. As we think about the one we're going to cover today, when you think about these disciplines, the first two categories, the Word and prayer, we all know we should be doing that. You grew up in church at all. You've been a Christian for any period of time at all. You know you're supposed to be reading your Bible. You know you should be praying. doesn't mean you do. It doesn't mean you do as much as you should, but you know you should. And when you don't, if the preacher brings it up, 
You probably feel guilty about it. Anybody just been there? I was there just preparing the message for both of those. Like, man, I have to tell everybody to do this better, and I'm not even doing it right. You know, there's this built-in, we know we're supposed to be doing that, but we feel guilty. But we don't, we don't quite, well, you know, maybe I don't, I don't have to read my Bible. No, you know you're supposed to. You know you're supposed to pray. But when we get to fasting, there was this sense of, uh, and you know, I'm just thinking through my own psychology and assuming you function slightly the same, that we, we start convincing ourselves that fasting's not really that big a deal. I mean, I'm supposed to do it, but maybe I don't have to. The fasting's not that emphasized in Scripture, especially compared to the reading the Bible. There's a whole psalm, the largest psalm about the glory of Scripture. There's no Psalm 119 about fasting. You know, so we start convincing ourselves. We come up with reasons. Okay, maybe I don't have to. I mean, I live in a culture that, of course, has more food than any culture of any period of time on any part of the planet has ever had more variety of food than ever before. And somehow we, we live in that world and convince ourselves, and, and I'm confessing here, that well, we don't have to fast. It's not that, or at least not very regularly. You see, there's this tendency when we don't like to do it, we start coming up with the reasons not to. Now, what's fascinating to me is the fourth category, the one we're going to discuss today, we go even one step further, and we're not even sure we're supposed to do it, but maybe we just do it for tradition's sake, or maybe we just do it for some other reason, and there's a strong trend in our culture to start to avoid this last category altogether, and that is our fellowship in the body of Christ. We are supposed to gather as the church. We're supposed to worship together. We're supposed to grow together. But there's a strong mentality, and I hear this all the time, that uh, my church is out there in the woods. My church is on that fishing boat. My church is in that um, tree stand. My church is fill in the blank. It's this other thing. My church is hanging out with these guys I do on the weekend. My church is... And they're trying to say there's some way I fellowship with the Lord, but I don't have to do it with the gathered body. Interestingly enough, um, that is directly in contradiction to the Scriptures at multiple levels. So we're going to look at this um, from several different angles. But really what I'm telling you is that coming to church is more than just something you're supposed to do. It's more than just a checkbox. This is part of God's strategy for you to grow in Christ-likeness. And if you don't use it, you're probably going to use all of the other categories poorly. You're not going to use them correctly. And so we're going to, basically, I'm just arguing today that you should participate in church. Not show up, but participate in the life and the fellowship, the community of the body of Christ. That's my goal this morning. So let's dive into Ephesians. We're going to pick up in chapter 4. Probably in verse, let's just pick up in verse 8. No, let's pick up in 7. I changed my mind. Verse 7. This is a great chapter. I'll try not to preach the whole sermon on the opening text, but we'll see what happens. All right, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 tells us, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we can go into a lot there. God gives us grace specifically to each of us according to some measure and that measure is based on how much grace God gives you. So does God give all people the same amount of grace? Technically, the answer is no, because we have a tendency to think of this grace only in terms of salvation. 
that we got saved, so we got X amount of grace to cover X amount of sin. That's not it. The grace here in this passage, is going to be very clear in a moment, is actually the grace that comes after salvation, that growth in Christ. Who are you going to be in Christ? How is God going to use you in the kingdom? There's a specific and unique measure of grace that God gave you according to whatever Christ gives. So then he quotes the Old Testament. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So in the psalm that he's quoting, the idea is the Lord descends and then goes up on the mountain in the mountain of Zion where the temple is. And from that mountain, he receives gifts from men. But Paul changes the quote and says when Jesus goes up on the mountain, he doesn't receive gifts from men. Instead, he gives gifts to men. And then verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean also but that he descended into the lower regions, that is, the earth. So Jesus was in heaven. He descended here with us in the flesh. And then from there, the one who descended is the one also who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. So that's a fancy way of saying Jesus was in heaven. He came to earth and he went back to heaven. And from heaven, he gives out gifts. And he's giving out these gifts as the victor over all things. He fulfills all things. So what level of authority does he claim in his gift giving? Oh, absolute total authority. So what does he do with those gifts? Verse 11. So this is what he does. He gave the apostles. He gave the prophets. He gave the evangelists. He gave the shepherds and teachers. That last category is the pastors, the elders of a church. Why? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So why does Jesus give out the gifts? And they're kind of sequential. You had the apostles, you had prophets, then you had the evangelists, and now we live in the age that's mostly teachers, shepherds. He gave us those gifts for one purpose, and that purpose was to do what? Build up the body of Christ. So by design, he's given us the word, which is the apostles, the original pushing out of the gospel through the New Testament, the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, this mission work, and now shepherds and teachers who walk us through the text and teach us the scriptures. All of this is designed to help us build up the body of Christ towards a goal, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now that's Paul's really wordy way of saying he's going to build us up until we look like Jesus. Maturity. Christian maturity is us looking like Jesus. Now what's the context where all of that maturity takes place in? It's the church, the body of Christ. If you want to be mature in your faith, This is where it happens. So our first blank's in the outline, in the bulletin. The gathered body of Christ is designed by God to help us grow in maturity. So the idea of the fellowship of the body, man's idea or God's? It's God's idea. This is not our going back and saying, hey, let's let's be pragmatic. Let's figure out a way to get Christians to grow. That's not how it worked. Jesus planned to do it this way. 
In fact, even in Matthew's gospel where he's saying that the gates of hell will not prevail against what thing in particular? It's the church. This is his plan. This is his strategy. He's given his gifts for this purpose to use us together to build this maturity to the fullness of Christ. Now see how, let's finish out the passage though. So going down through verse 16. So starting 14. So that we may no longer be children. So children is compared to maturity. There's a mature Christian believer versus the childish Christian believer. What's the child? It's tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You can see that the child in this context is not grounded, not solid, not consistent, not faithful, doesn't know which direction to go, but the mature one is solid, has grounding, knows what Christ-likeness is, and is working and striving together in that. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, that is into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When do you grow? When each part, Greek word here is where we get our word member, where each member of the body is doing its part. If each member is doing its part, what's the body do? It grows. So where does Christian growth come from? The body working together. This is God's design. Church, for 2,000 years, has operated this way. It's not our idea. It's not a modern idea. It's a biblical, God-sourced idea. This is the plan. So the gathered body of Christ is designed by God to help us grow in maturity. Now, let's flesh this out some more. So go to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. It's a great chapter. Um, 12 through 14 is a really good section to dive into. And we're talking about spiritual gifts. But I want you to see specifically what's going on with the idea of spiritual gifts in this scenario. So if we just went around the room and asked everyone to give us a definition of spiritual gift, I imagine we'd probably get a lot of different answers. So I'm really more curious what the biblical definition of what a spiritual gift is. And we're going to see that in verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 Verse 7, I want you to see, this is very fundamental that you understand. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. That's Paul's primary lingo for spiritual gift. The manifestation of the Spirit. So each one of us has a way the Spirit shows up in us for the common good. So why would someone have a spiritual gift? For the common good. Is your spiritual gift for you? No, actually not. It's for the body. Now, he goes on and explains this a million different ways. For the one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge, to another the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one and the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So, does everyone get the same manifestation of the Spirit? No, by design. 
You're not going to be the Renaissance man in the church. You're an eye or a foot. You don't get to be everything. You're not supposed to be everything. You're supposed to be you. And it's very important that all of us be that person God has made us to be in the body. That's how we produce the growth. That's what spiritual gifts are for. And then Paul goes through this whole analogy about how the body does not consist of one member, but many. That's in verse 14. You've got the foot, can't complain about the eye and the ear and all these different body parts. You get the analogy. A human person is not an eyeball or foot. It's all of that. And you need all of it together, working together. I don't know about you, but when one part of your body quits working, you probably notice. You know what I'm talking about? I threw out my back back in um, October, and just like probably one muscle in my back, I don't know if it was torn, it was injured, whatever it was, it was screaming at me, and the rest of my body was unwilling to work so long as that muscle was injured. You follow what I'm saying? Or, you know, if your hand, oh, you wake, you, you stand up real quick, and you're on the couch or a chair, and your foot's asleep, and you try to walk across the room, no hope. Right? You know what I'm talking about. And then when it starts to wake up, you know, it's all those needles stabbing you in the face. Is that just me? I don't know. Like, it really kills me. You follow what I'm saying. Or any kind of injury or have a part of your body quit working permanently. Any of these scenarios, you notice what's Paul trying to say. He's emphasizing that part. Is that when the body is together, it operates this way. Now, look at verse 18. I want you to see that. This is one you should underline. But as it is... God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. Let's be honest. When we gather together as a church, we have an easy time loving some people, and other people we don't. We're not going to put anybody out. Not going not to be specific. I'm just going to say, no, <laughs> she got a thing to herself. I, was, I think I misread. Anyway, I'm going to move on before that goes wrong. So there's always... You know, this idea of the kind of people you like in the church and the kind of people you don't like in the church. People, and we don't have to be specific, you don't have to look at them when I say this, but there's people in this room that you probably wouldn't hang out with if you weren't in this room. Fair? We don't have to agree that loud. All right, so you're with me. Everybody in in their mind is, they're not just agreeing, they're actually thinking of that person. You know what I'm talking about. We recognize that there's weird people here. And this is Church at the Square. We almost, like, should label that. A church at the Square, weird folks allowed. You know, I don't know. Like, there's just this oddness about us, which I love. I think it's one of the coolest things about our church. We've got a group of people who are just, it's like, how does that work? You know, we've got all kinds of different folks here. Listen, this is by God's design. The church is supposed to be that way. It's what it's supposed to feel like. We've got feet. We've got Hands, we've got eyes, we've got appendixes that are about to rupture, we've got lots of interesting body parts, but they're all here by God's design. This is how it's supposed to work, and we're using these gifts together. Now, look at how he words it in verse 26. When it happens like this, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice Together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We are the body. I am a member. 
And in that, we find the unity of the body of Christ. Not that we're the same. Not that we like the same foods or even vote the same way or we like the same music or we spend our free time doing the same sorts of things. That's not what unites us. The one thing that unites us is our faith in Christ. And God has designed us differently so that when we come together as the body, we each fulfill a different role. Some of us are better at things than others. And so where I may be strong, you may be weak. And where you may be strong, I may be weak. And if we put us all together, then we cover all the bases. But we need the diversity in the body to be able to do that. This is all by design. So you need to be here because we need you. And you need to be here because you need us. It's mutual. It's reciprocal. We could say, but let's see how Paul wraps all this up. The whole discussion goes three chapters, but I want to see just a key verse in chapter 14, verse 26. This is how Paul brings the whole discussion about spiritual gifts, the different roles we play in the body. all comes down to this. Let all things be done for building up. That's what it's for. We come together to build one another up. Now, let's look at another one. We're going to get nerdy for just a second. Uh, Ephesians, not Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. I've mentioned this one before. Um, It's probably been a while. You might not remember the details here. But let's just go back over this text. This is a text that's often very misread um, just because of how the English language works. So I just want to paint it in the right light. So this is Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I've heard many people quote this verse to say the exact opposite of what it means. And the problem, it's not like you're being a false teacher. It's not that you're dumb. It's just that the English language is dumb. It's not your fault. English is just, I don't know, every other language can do this. English, for some reason, cannot, unless you live in the South. We fixed it down here. Right? And and some of you have heard me get on the soapbox a number of times. You know, and it's the word you. In English, is you singular or plural? Both. Whichever. How dumb is that? Does that make any sense to you? All right, in the South, we refuse to follow that pattern. We say you when we mean singular, And when we mean plural, we say y'all, you all, and even in the north, let's be honest, even in the north they do this. They just don't say y'all. You guys, you guys, some version of we know inherently that you and plural you should never be the same word. And in no other language, especially in Greek, is it the case. The you here in your own. We? Weans. That one's new to me. Weans. Okay, I'm going to Google that later. See if, it, see if it's in the... Okay. Here in this passage, what is often read in this verse is you need to work out your own individual salvation. When that is the exact opposite of what Paul just said. He did not say you work out your own salvation. In any way, that's the exact opposite of his meaning. He's saying, guys, in my absence, who's writing? 
It's Apostle Paul. He says, guys, while I'm not there, y'all work out y'all's salvation without me. So on your own, not individual own, but that local body. Work out salvation together. There's an assumption in the Bible that you're going to do this in a group. There's no such thing as individual Christianity. And I know somebody will bring up the, the, the story of the, the thief on the cross. It's like, well, he didn't exactly have an opportunity. All right? He, he died like a few minutes later. But if he had not died, I'm confident he would have been part of the body of Christ. No question. Biblically, body of Christ. There is no solo Christianity in the Scriptures. It's not how it works. We are to work this out together. So we grow as we work out our salvation with one another. So you can circle that your own and make a note in your margin that this is plural and this means all of us working together. We work out our salvation. We corporately work this out together. Now let's look at another one. This is one of my favorite passages. I haven't referenced it in a while. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. We're going to read verse 24. You're not far from there. A few pages towards the back. Hebrews 10. We're going to read verse 24. Now, Hebrews is a wonderful book. It's spent a lot of time arguing so far up to this point in chapter 10 that you would never go back to Moses once you had Christ. He's the perfect sacrifice, the eternal redemption offered through him. You don't have to go through the motions over and over and over again because Jesus did it once for all, and that once for all sacrifice does work internally in your heart that provides full assurance. And then he gives us a lot of therefores. This is in the middle of the therefores. He tells us, therefore, let us draw near, let us hold fast our confession. And then now in verse 24, the one I want us to look at, because we have Christ, because we've been purchased, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Now, my translation has played the, the friendly game on this word. The word there for stir up, it's the only time it's translated this way in my Bible. Every other time, it's provoked. And this is the word usually when you get provoked to anger. This is that word. So as a kid, um, I, I was that, I still do it. What am I saying? I'm just going to talk about it as a kid as though it was a long time past. I like to provoke. Um, and the way I would do it with my sister, who was younger than me, we, my parents bought a minivan when I was a kid, not because we needed all the seats, but because they needed to separate us. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I would get in the back, and she would get on the front, but the problem with that separation is my arms were long enough. I could still touch her. You've been there. I don't know which kid you were, but you were probably one of the two kids at some point. Now, here's how that worked. When I would provoke my sister, she, she was younger, but she was smart, um, she knew that my goal was to get a reaction. You know what I'm talking about. Like, if I just tapped her and she ignored it, then she won. You know? So what would I do? I'm going to tap. I'm going to tap till I get a response. I don't care how patient you are. You can eventually get a response out of somebody. Keep tapping, keep tapping, keep tapping, which is why biblically this word is Always negative. You get provoked to anger. But this passage is not provoked to anger. It's provoked to love and good deeds. But who are you provoking? 
one another. In fact, the actual Greek word um, most literally is re- re- reference to that part we put on our boot when you're riding a horse. We call that a spur. Right, what do you do with a spur? You poke them with the intent of what happening? You get moving. So the Bible just told us to poke one another with a sharp object until you get a response. All right, but it's a metaphor because the poking is not a literal sharp object. It is your constant encouragement, your constant exhortation, your constant pushing and shoving towards good deeds, which, let's just reword that, towards Christ-likeness. My job, your job, with all of us gathered here, is to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Another word we use is we grow when we hold one another accountable. And accountability kind of has a very negative connotation. It's like, hey, were you bad this week? I'm gonna... That's the negative version of accountability. There's a positive version of accountability. I've said I was going to go to the gym a million times in my life. Well, not a million. You understand what I'm saying. And several years ago, one way to hold myself accountable, instead of paying a month at a time, I bought six months of membership all at once. And that way I know my pocketbook will hold me accountable if nothing else will. Except it didn't. <laughs> Went to the gym twice, like within a week. That was a very expensive two visits because I had paid for the whole time. But then four months ago, I started working out with a partner. That's different. Because then if I don't show up, you know, you get that, where were you, man? And consequently, I've gone almost every time, according to the schedule, to go work out. Why? It's accountability. We do this. We can almost do everything more efficiently if we do it together. That's what the Christian life is about. We're coming together together. We're holding one another accountable. We're holding hands. It's like with with my kids, we hold hands going across the street, going across the parking lot. I may walk faster than them, but as long as I'm holding the hand, I will drag them along. And maybe you're the one being dragged. Maybe you're the one dragging, but that's the idea. We're holding one another accountable. Because listen, if we don't take advantage of the church as a means of growth, we're missing one of the most powerful spiritual disciplines we could possibly have. Now, I know you could throw in a caveat here, maybe a disclaimer and say, well, I don't know, because when I go to church, there's that one person, maybe it's a couple people, that just really irks you. You don't have to point out, don't look, but you know. We wouldn't all look at the same person. We wouldn't. I got like four of you in mind. No, okay. All right. So there's, there's a person that just rubs you the wrong way. You know what I'm talking about. And you wonder, you know, when I go to church, I just end up in a bad mood. Is it even worth going? I'll tell you, yes. Yes, it is. Uh, We grow in maturity. Here's the last point. I'm going to illustrate this. We grow in maturity even when we don't feel like church is being helpful. And maybe especially when we don't. When we've got these people in our lives, because if you have a church, United by nothing but the blood of the Lord, you're going to get people together that might not get along otherwise. Is there still spiritual gain to hanging out with the people that frustrate you? So there's a guy from church history. 
Um, his name is Blaise Pascal. Anybody heard of this guy? I named, um, it's actually on my, my shirt there, Blaise Pascal is who I named my son after, Blaise. And uh, he was a mathematician slash theologian, which I just, I've always thought was really clever and, and awesome. I like that idea. He did um, Pascal's wager in theology, Pascal's law, Pascal's triangle in math. There's a lot of different interesting things. He, he made a comment. He wrote this in one of his books years and years and years ago. This is Enlightenment era, um, Reformation era. He was Catholic. I'll forgive him that. But uh, he made this comment about going to church because he's kind of the academic, super nerdy, super heady kind of guy going to church. And when he gets to church, there's elements of church for him, especially in his Catholic world, that were just kind of silly to him. Uh, he wanted to deal with the, the theology. He wanted to think through the philosophical implications of something. He didn't want to have to deal with all the kneeling and, and all the, what we might call the, the, the praise songs. Or For his version, it was different elements of the service that he felt were just kind of, you know, almost embarrassing to have to participate as a man of sense. But he came to realize that there was a lot of spiritual growth for him in those moments. Because every time he had to do something he didn't like, it reminded him that he wasn't as awesome as he thought he was. There was a humbling aspect. There was a, we use a different word in our culture. We would say there's a sanctifying aspect to these different members of the body. These different parts of the body we don't like cause us to grow. There was this guy I went to school with, and I won't be any be specific since this does get recorded and put online and could go back and listen to it. I don't want to give away too much information. But there was this guy I went to school with that for the most part, everyone put up with, but no one liked. Envision the person. You know, you've met that guy. If you can't figure out who that guy is, you are that guy. Um, but there's that person that, uh, and you can probably imagine, just awkward to talk to, like always would argue with you, and wasn't even being mean, just didn't know any other way. Couldn't, you just, you never enjoyed the conversation. He would, you would see him coming to the cafeteria lunch table and you saw the chair he was coming for was next to you and you speed up your meal. You know, like it's just, it was just awkward. The guy was frustrating. And anytime you had a conversation, you knew it was going to be kind of one-sided. You could argue your point till you were blue in the face. It didn't matter because he didn't hear it. It was just kind of a frustrating, but he wasn't mean. He was meaning well. He's a nice guy, just... His social skills were terrible, and of course, people would make fun of him when he wasn't in the room, and, and um, I'm not going to lie, I participated in many of those um, demeaning conversations, shouldn't have, but I did, and you know what I'm talking about. I, I suspect you have um, been in some of those conversations as well. Well, we were on a school trip one time, and uh, he sat down next to me on the bus on, on the way to where we were, go he was, where we were going, and he we were talking for a minute, and I was, I'm not going to lie, I saw him coming, and the seat was available, and I was trying to brainstorm ways to make that seat not available, but I couldn't come up with anything fast enough. And he sat down next to me, and I wasn't going to be openly mean to the guy. I couldn't do that with a clear conscience. For some reason, I could do it behind his back, but I couldn't do it in front. You know what I'm talking about. This is a story of me being hypocritical, I, you know, so, so I, confession. Um, but he sat down, and I just internally, I'm like, oh, no, this whole ride. I'm going to have to sit next to this guy. 
And I was really kind of disappointed. I'm kind of fuming on the inside. I'm trying not to show it on the outside. And we talked for a few minutes. And partway into this conversation, he looks over at me and says, you know, Brian, you're just one of those genuinely nice people. And that's just really something to me. I really appreciate that about you. So he makes his compliment. Did that compliment make me feel good or make me feel terrible? Absolute terrible. I felt like, I don't know, like some dung. You know, just like I'm a terrible, horrible person. But can you imagine what that did to me besides just making me feel bad? That was like Hebrews 10.24. I just got provoked. He didn't even know. He was just being nice. It was one of the nicest things he ever said ever. But it was just, wow, sharp, little spur, stabbing on my backside saying, you, you need to grow up here. Changed the way I thought about that. But I wouldn't have had that moment if I'd successfully avoided sitting with him. And we wouldn't have those moments corporately if we only went to church when we liked everybody. Or if we only hung out with people that we always got along with. It's the times we don't get along. It's the times we do have friction. It's the times we do have to say we're sorry. The times we do have to forgive that we grow. And so we grow even in those moments. God is working in and through us. Whether we feel it or not, there's a change happening. We need to trust God in this change. And the way we honor this idea is we faithfully participate the body of Christ. So show up, but don't just show up. Get to know everybody here. There's probably people in this room, you don't know their name. Maybe it's awkward at this point because it's been long enough you should. Well, just break the ice today and go figure that out after service. Go introduce. Maybe go have lunch with somebody you, you haven't before. Show up on Wednesday and introduce yourself to someone you haven't seen before. Or join a small group. We've got other opportunities throughout the week. Get to know folks and let that community of faith Help you grow in Christ-likeness.